episode four of Valar Podcastus. Um, welcome, welcome back, and welcome back to Alice, um, Alice Zaslavsky. Uh, you might have heard her on episode one, she's back again for episode four, always a treat. Um, and also making a return, George R.R. R. Martin, second part of my uh, interview with him that I did for the Wheeler Centre. You'll hear that um, after the recap. Book of the Stranger, episode four. There were plenty of um, reunions in this episode. If I had to pick a theme, my theme would be reunion. So it's appropriate, Alice, that you and I are reunited. And it feels so good. (laughs) From episode one of Valar Podcastus. Um, And we should go on the record and say that you thought up the name as well. I did. I got in trouble for that. I didn't give you mad kudos last time. mate. Credit where it's due, please. I gave out some kudos, just not mad kudos. Alanister always pays... It's gags. Yeah. So a, Dan- a, a Danister <laughs> always pays his debts. So well done. Um, but yeah, plenty of reunions right from the start on this episode, um, which was called Book of the Stranger, which I thought was a pretty flimsy episode title. It was like one mention to it and it was kind of incidental. Oof. Oof. And the death, like if it was meant to be a death reference, there was one death and it was also quite incidental. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, unless you're talking about all the all the Dothraki, Dothraki. Carls at the end. They don't count. <laughs> Don't you think? Like they, you know. They were all like, um, like you can imagine that like at the audition for Carl Drogo in the first series, it was a whole room of all of those guys. And like Carl Drogo was obviously better, like Jason Momoa, obviously better than all of them. But they were like, we'll get all you guys back eventually though. And we need a round table of Dothraki um, by, by episode four of series six. Yeah, I was um, at the end of... The, the last episode, um, you sort of saw Jon Snow walk off into the wilderness. So it was a bit weirded out that he was at the wall for some reason. Oh, I know, actually, yeah. Because you'd think that that would mean that he was done. Not yeah. like, I'm done with this scene. I'm going to go to my caravan, have a coffee, and then come back to the wall. Yeah, or like the awkward goodbye where it's like, goodbye, see you later. We've had such good times. Here's my jacket. And then it's like, I am actually staying here for a few more <laughs> nights, though. <laughs> my Airbnb doesn't kick in for like till Wednesday. Um, and then, so Sansa and John have been reunited. I was having a look at, cause the whole thing with the series is that you're constantly, the Starks are almost getting reunited. Yes. So you had Arya and Sansa almost reunited in the Vale. Mm-hmm. Arya and Rob almost reunited at the Twins. Bran and John, remember, were almost reunited beyond the wall. I so totally close. forgot about that. But when I was looking back, I was like, oh, yeah, that, that wasn't even in the books. But there was the um, Craster's Keep and he was right there. I was like, mm. ah, I, could, I could catch up with you, but no. And so, even Bran and young Ned. Well, there, was, there was no flashback in this episode. We will get one in the next one from the trailer. But anyway, anyway, Sansa and John are together. What do you reckon is going to happen, Alice? Okay. Um, I felt, actually, I felt like Sansa's voice in this episode. There's a lot of strength a lot of resonance and what I feel is going to happen is that Sansa's going to step up because she's been such a flimsy mm. like foo-foo and now she's just like, John, we need to do this. Mm. Whereas old Sansa would have been like, no, no, it's fine. We'll just tend and befriend. I did like the the bit when John was like, oh, I was such a, a sulky. I was putting up with my sulkiness back in the day. You were like, ha, 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 yeah, you were a brooding little bitch, Jon Snow. <laughs> The other thing that we've seen from the books that happened in the episode was the um, the letter from Ramsay, mm. which was subtly different. Very um, unsubtly different. In the books, mm. I mean, it's Mance Raider mm-hmm. who's at at uh, Winterfell, not um, Rickon. Rickon. Yep. And it's um, 
fake Arya mm. who's gone wandering, not Sansa. But I also think it's interesting that um, the line that keeps being repeated is you'll see, yep. whereas in the books it was bastard. Yeah. I don't know. Why do you think they've done that? They really want to lure John down there. Mm. The, I mean, the major battle I feel we're going to get is it's going to be Jon Snow, Sansa, Wildlings, etc. Mm-hmm. versus Bolton Army, etc. We just need to know what the etc. is going to be. Yeah. Well, I think that John's also going to be helped by the Vale. Mm-hmm. So Littlefinger's coming with the Vale peeps. That's true. Yeah. Unless, of course, he flips it over and goes to the Bolton side, but I can't see that happening. Yeah, but I mean, this is the first we've seen Littlefinger in this series so far, mm. emerging from his stagecoach. I noticed, I noticed the stairs, yeah, with a little falcon gift in the back, uh, not a severed direwolf head, which was the previous, like, surprise <laughs> gift from the back of a stagecoach. Yes. It's hard to tell where his alliance lies, whether he's going to like you said, flip mm. mid-battle and side with the Boltons. I mean, I'm sure he's just trying, he's ingratiated himself with pretty much everyone. Yes. But I think that he realised that it would take something massive for the Vale to militarise. Mm. And so that's why he, I think that's why he orchestrated the whole Sansa thing, to be honest, mm. because he knew that that was going to piss off enough of, of the Vale and also especially Young. Sweet Robin. Robin. Sweet, sweet Robin. <laughs> Who's grown a bit, but is still just as inept as before. Oh, he reminds me of um, Paul from the Wonder Years. I, he like seems like a, the fifth member of the Inbetweeners or something yes. like that. Just like this <laughs> gawky teenage guy. And it's like his comment on like interbreeding royal families mm. where there's always just like the one kid who's like, oh, yes, hello, I'm going to the king one day. Yes, yeah. that's Robin Aaron. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so... That's where, like, also at the wall, um, you got a good showdown. It was kind of cut a little bit short, but between Brienne, Davos, and Melisandre, and all of them getting each other the same page, being like, hang on, this is awkward. Um, and confirmation that um, Stannis is dead. Stannis is definitely dead. Mm-hmm. I was talking about that last week because it was actually confirmed by David and Dan, the, the series creators. Mm. They said, yep. He's dead. And I was like, why didn't they show it? And my theory is that just, they never got a good shot of it. Yeah. And they looked at the footage after the day of filming. We're like, oh, none of those really work. Ah, we'll just cut away. Yeah. I was like, it's the only time in Game of Thrones history they've ever cut away from something gruesome. Very true. But yeah, so bit of simmering tension there. How do you reckon um, Davos is going to react to the death of Shireen? That's going to be very interesting because mm. I feel like he's finally got faith in, in the Red Woman. Yeah. And what's going to happen now? As soon as he finds out about Shireen, he's going to lose his shit. Mm. Yeah. I, do you reckon he's already, I mean, I feel like he knows. In his heart, I feel like he knows. He's got to know because where's the wife? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's just, unless he thinks that maybe they've gone, they went with him, with, um, with Stannis, but he knows that they didn't. Yeah. And he also knows that Stannis is dead now. So, I mean, is he going to go on a war path? Is he, is he going to try and, I mean, cause he was, yeah, it's like he just sided with Melisandre to bring mm. John back. So that kind of puts a, a point in her corner. But then he's also found out that she's ruthlessly killing the girl that he was carving miniature figurines mm. for. So I feel like there's going to be a scene where Melisandre discovers that it wasn't her that actually brought back Jon Snow. That because it was a, a I don't know if we've discussed this before, okay. Dan, but right. it was a very flimsy, like you don't just like say a few words yes. and suddenly Jon comes back, right? Yeah, I know. I I thought the exact same thing. So could it not be that it was actually John's Targaryen blood that brought him back 
And when Melisandre and Davos discover this is also the moment that Davos discovers that Melisandre tried to, like, tried to kill a little mm. girl in order to, and then he'll just, that's when he'll just lose it. The power of magic is so interesting, isn't it? Because you can't, like, there's definitely magic in this world. Like, mm. you look at Daenerys who, who can't be born by, uh, uh, harmed by fire and who brought bag, dragons back to life mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then there's other stuff where you go, maybe that, maybe your version of magic is the wrong one and someone else's is the right one. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, she was so, so, so adamant that she could see Stannis mm. in the flames. And then in this, episode, in this episode, she's like, oh, it's not Stannis anymore. It's John now. I've, I've switched to John. And they're all like, oh, okay. All right. Then exactly. <laughs> what does that mean? And then there's um, arriving... If you saw the trailer for the next episode, there's a red priestess arriving in Marine. Yes. As well. Yep. So there's all these moving parts because you've got, at its, at its core, everyone goes, oh, it's the Song of Ice and Fire. You've got Daenerys, Fire, obviously, in mm-hmm. this episode, John, Ice. Mm-hmm. So it's those two. But then there's all these other moving parts, like the Faceless Men or like um, uh, the Red Priests. Yep. Um, all these different parts who all buy into magic as well. There's prophecies. There's all this sort of stuff. Yep. Who's right? Who's wrong? What's the overarching principle that governs it all? I mean, you'd assume that it's all going to eventually come together in some neatly tied up wonderful package. You'd like to think so. I don't think that's going to happen. But I I think it's interesting that there are so many um, different parallels in terms of fanaticism. Yeah. You really saw that with the High Sparrow this episode, which I'm sure we'll discuss. Well, we can discuss it right now. That's We're bouncing tight. around. Well, that's another one of the reunions is the Marjorie and Loris reunion in this mm-hmm. episode where Loris is just like, I just want it all to be over. feels like when you look at like Lancel um, Lannister and the way he's just given up as well, it seems like there are two, once you get mixed up with the High Sparrow, there are two ways it can go. Mm-hmm. He's either going to break you and you'll be a shell of your former self or you want to destroy him more than anything else, like say Cersei or things like what Marjorie seems to be doing. Do you reckon that's what Marjorie is is doing? Well, it's hard for her to tell because she's on the inside. Mm. She's locked up. But definitely on the outside, there seems to be a big Lannister, Tyrell banding together to destroy this. And it seems like there's going to be, because what, what was sort of brokered today with Cersei and Kevin Lannister and the Queen of Thorns was this agreement the Tyrell army is going to sweep King's Landing and the Lannisters will just let it happen. Mm. So basically what you've got is Cersei is using this familial thing where she's saying, Lady Elena, you've got your grandkids locked up. Mm. Whereas Kevin, you've got Lancel, um, you know, waving his cudgel around with his tattoo on his head. Don't you want him back? We've got to all, and, and she, you know, she wants to try and get revenge on all of this. So she's saying, why don't we all work together? Mm-hmm. But I mean, what's the answer? They're going to flood the city with this army from Highgarden. The, the Lannisters are going to, you know, sit back and let it happen. But then what happens? There's just blood in the streets of King's Landing. Cersei's once again losing power. But how did Cersei get that information that Marjorie's going to be getting the walk of shame? Cause- well, I assume she's basing it on what she went through and her chat with the the high sparrow about, you know, now Marjorie has to atone. Yeah. I guess she's just assuming that's what's going to happen. Remember how Tommen was saying that, oh, the, the high sparrow told me this thing, but I don't want to tell you. Mm. And then it ends scene. Mm. What if the high sparrow fed Tommen the wrong information? 
I am so suspicious about the High Sparrow and Tom. And I was saying the last time when they did that scene together, how he sort of, they were standing and they were facing each other. And he's like, let's sit and let's sit next yes. to each other. So it went from being a confrontation to two friends having a little chat. He's a real, he's a real manipulator. He's a, and this whole story about him, like being a cobbler's son and all this stuff, I, I don't buy that he's just powered by religious fanaticism. And what does he want? Does he want to take over King's Landing and, and be the new king? And, but he constantly talks about not wanting all the finery and the mm. trappings and whatever. Is he just has he got, has he got some vendetta against Lannisters or? I think he's a Marxist. Like he's a <laughs> he's an allegory of communism because originally the communists, like the Bolsheviks, yeah, yeah. were going into power because they wanted to shirk all of the you know like. Um, get rid of the scourge of, of capitalism. Mm. And then they came in and they did exactly the same thing. Well, that's interesting because one of the themes in the in the show and in the books is there's many ways to power. There are many ways to power. There's being born into power. There's seizing power through a coup. Um, and maybe, yeah, this is just another example of that. There's also like um, super, being getting power through supernatural means, mm-hmm. like the White Walkers beyond the wall. Mm-hmm they might end up being the most powerful at the end purely just because they're magical. Mm. So maybe it is. Maybe it's just another, let's say, there's five different ways of getting power. This is this example. Mm. Will that one end up triumphing? Well, what we are shaping up for is that it looks like, because Cersei still has to be trialed as well. Mm. So there's Cersei's trial and Marjorie's trial. Now, the idea behind Cersei's trial is that she's got this reanimated version of the mountain to step in for her yep. against whoever the faith have as their sort of champion. So is it going to be a trial by combat? I assume so. That's how they seem to end. Yes. And then there's Marjorie's as well. Maybe Cersei's trying to create chaos so she can avoid having to, to go to trial, but... You feel like if she's got this Frankenstein ultimate warrior, you know, who's got proven form in trials by combat, <laughs> why, why not just step in and clear your name and, and rule? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Before we get to um, Daenerys and the Dothraki and all that sort of jazz, um, <laughs> let's go to Theon um, because he had a bit to do in this episode. He's finally arrived on the Iron Islands and it looks like next episode we're going to get the actual king's moot as well. Were you like... Oh, yay, a family reunion in, in, in Damp Palace. <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely more of the same of that reu- the reunion theme, but I thought it was interesting because there were a lot of women um, in this episode that were kind of like the damsels, yeah. and I feel like um, she is definitely not a damsel. Yeah, Yara. Yara. Renamed from the books. Yeah, that's Asha why it's in the books. Me. Yeah, I know. I always go to call her Asha, but oh. it's like, nope, she's called Yara. So he's thrown his claim behind her because mm. um, I was talking last week or the week before about um, will Theon step up and be one of the names of the king's mood. It do- and and um, my friend Luke was like, no, nah, it's, uh, it's, he just, he can't have a voice. Yeah. He's, he's persona non grata on the Iron Islands because of all the ridiculous things that he's done. Um and yeah, it looks like that's the case. It looks like it's going to be Yara versus Euron, who has had one scene in his raincoat on the bridge. Um, I want to see more of Euron. Because, I mean, he hasn't even been named. No one's actually said his name yet. True. So just to convince the viewing public, not even to convince the, the Iron Islanders on the shore at the Kingsmoot, he's going to have to 
to give his whole backstory and be like, here's why I should beat the the daughter, yep. the daughter son sort of running ticket of um, Theon and Yara. Like yeah. he's, yeah, I reckon from the previews of next episode, Sansa and Littlefinger at the wall mm-hmm. uh, having a, a chat, um, which A looks good because she's like, you knew what was going to happen with me and Ramsay, which is great. Like you said, like really coming into her own. Yes. But there must be some transit system in Westeros that we're not hearing about. <laughs> yeah. Little finger. Just yeah. like, beam me up, Scotty. It takes him four <laughs> episodes to get to the veil, but like, you know, later that day, yeah. he's up at the wall. Like, I don't know, I've, I, the time scale, I'd love to sit down and work it out. Yeah. Um, but, he took know. a falcon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Gandalf on the, yes, on the eagles in exactly. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so then the King's Moot, um, which was also in the teaser trailer for next week. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll get some of that. Um, and we'll get back to Bran as well. It looks like he's having another vision. Not the goddamn Tower of Joy. No. Still not getting that, but um, something to do with the Night's King. So, I guess he's going to realise that there's a threat beyond the wall, which John knows as well. So, the, the, the main sort of big finale of this episode happened in uh, Vase Dothrak, mm-hmm. um, where Daenerys... Another reunion, Daenerys, Jorah, and Dario. Uh-huh. See, so many reunions. Yes. They did the whole let's bust in and, and kill people and, and bust her out, um, which I think was sort of heavily implied. A very masculine way of, of busting her out. Yes. And um, and very much they were playing at a very damsel in distress storyline. Mm, mm. um, and then she was like, I'm going to do this. I got this. <laughs> I got this. I, I, when she tipped over the, the sort of fire brazier, I was kind of like, it ignited so quickly. <laughs> I was like, what have they built this whole little temple out of? Like, why? Why did we use flammable bricks? <laughs> it looked like it was made of stone. But then I was kind of like, well, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, because maybe, maybe that's a space where they pour a lot of wine on the ground. It's like, that's, that's where they sacrifice all their petrol. <laughs> yes. I don't know. <laughs> What did you think? Do you think it was cool? Did you like seeing Daenerys use her fire trick to impress Dothraki natives again? So, so great. I loved her speech. That was amazing. Mm. Um, and I think, again, the power that was coming through that. I, don't, I wonder how they shot that. I wonder if they shot it sort of on a green screen situation because I couldn't tell if she was affected by the fire or if the fire was just not, not even there and she was pretending. Mm, it's Whoops. very different, like, between the books and between the TV show. It seems like in the TV show she just is 100% immune to fire. Yes. Any fire that touches her, it's like a warm breeze. Mm. Um, but not clothes. Whatever clothes she's wearing. Oh, they're gone. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She is allergic to clothes. <laughs> Yo, to be honest, I was actually thinking this. We're four episodes in. We haven't seen that many boobs this series. And yet we're rewarded with the best boobs of all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Try these perky numbers. Um, but yeah, I, I do think maybe... There's been a bit of media sort of criticism about, oh, Game of Thrones, it's just hits and dragons. Mm. And they've gone, all right, we hear you. Yeah. And we're going to tone back the boobs. And, <laughs> and like, the dragons. Yeah, well, so dragons. well, I don't know. They've been unleashed. Mm. and um, <laughs> The boobs? <laughs> yeah. The dragons have been unleashed and pff, that's it. They're just hanging out. Um, but, yeah, so. <laughs> the boobs. I just, I feel, <laughs> it's just so good. I reckon they have. I reckon they've gone... Let's try and see how many stories we can tell without sex position, mm. without like whipping boobs out. And they've done a pretty reasonable job. 
I agree. Like, for example, when um, Daenerys first arrived at the Dosh Clean and they ripped her clothes off and there were just a lot of really tasteful camera angles. Yep. And I feel like young Game of Thrones yeah. in its adolescence mm-hmm. would have done a lot of full frontal right there. But, you know, wiser, more mature Series 6 Game of Thrones is like, ah, no, we need not display the Norks just yet. <laughs> Wait until the fiery showdown. <laughs> and I thought it was really funny, actually, how Jorah and Dario responded. Mm. Like the eye contact, like mm. the don't, like almost that they're at a nudist colony, don't make eye contact, <laughs> look down. Because that's their whole vibe, isn't it? It's like, he's like, you know, Captain Friendzone, like <laughs> loves her so much, but she just doesn't want a part of it. Whereas he, like Dario is like the total, like Dario the Lothario, <laughs> who was like totally in bed with her, but she married a complete other guy. <laughs> so... Their vibe is both of them have been like cock blocked by her, mm. but Dario managed to get a piece. But Jorah's the guy who's been helping her out all the time. So when they're like wandering around the desert together, like their vibe is just so, it's so bro, it's so locker room, it's so antagonistic. That, and because they are total bros. Yeah. Because what I think about Westeros is like the knights of that society mm-hmm. are like the sports players, the jocks of our society. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Jamie Lannister, star quarterback. Yeah. That's who they are. So these two guys are like, oh, yeah, man, I hit that. Yeah, well, I totally could have too. Yeah, whatever, man. But she ended up marrying like another dude anyway. So what did you even get? Yeah, well, who was in bed with her, bro? Like that's <laughs> their vibe. They're just a couple of jocks talking about the queen of the cheerleaders. Super jockish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, oh, yeah, give me, your, give me your knife. All right, I'll give you my porno knife because he's got the knife <laughs> yeah. with the sort of... It's like the one that spins around. Yep, yep, his little trick it. dagger, his like tricksy dagger. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, But, of course, he's like, didn't give it to you, you know? Yeah. Saved your life with it, sucked in. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I guess she'll take um, her army of Dothraki, who have now all pledged to her, because mm-hmm. let's face it, she's just, you know... Burnt all their leaders alive. Yep. Pretty, you know, yep. useful way of getting rid of them. I saw it called, and you'll love this. Are you ready for it? Oh. I saw it called in the New York Times a Barbie coup. Oh. <laughs> so good. Are you angry you didn't think of it? Yes. Because I was, I was thinking, you know, maybe they went with like Carl Grilled. Carl Grilled. <laughs> That's okay. That's, That's okay. pretty good Thank too. Thank you. That's not bad. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, now she's got an army of Dothraki who are loyal to her. If she takes them to Marine, where, I mean, still the, the scenes of Marine are just they're so pointless. Oh, they're just It's just, like mm. it feels like they're treading water. I thought maybe Tyrion had brought those prostitutes in because, do you reckon? I thought they were undercover murderers. So did I. Yeah. 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 And then no murder. Nothing. Um, I was just like, what's going on here? Like, what's he doing? Is he trying to do diplomacy? I don't even care about this diplomacy because I reckon Daenerys is going to bust out literally and figuratively. Yes, she's busted (laughs) out and the bust is out. Um, like I just, I just don't care. Like maybe if in, like in the books it was an actual war, Mm. but I feel like I didn't have the budget for that. No, I agree. So they're just like. Diplomacy is just as interesting, and Tyrion has a way with words. And it's like you've got your most loved character, the guy who's won the Emmys, yeah. and he's just bantering. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So hopefully Daenerys will get back there quick, smart. And then you're like, great. So ever since the fighting pits till now, could have just been excised. I guess she has to get an army somehow. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. 
<laughs> and the other one that um, we were all like, oh, this could be a cool little double cross that mm. didn't eventuate was um, Osher, the wildling, yes. um, trying to use the old sex and stab <laughs> against Ramsey. So it was such, oh, I felt that sort of the sense of relief coming and then nothing, gone. I'm really? too cynical with Game of Thrones. I didn't buy it. I was like, just seeing that knife there and, and her on top of him, I was like, this is too easy. Yeah. Like, they are going to kill Ramsay in a spectacular way. Like Joffrey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's going to be, it's going to be like Joffrey times 10. I cannot wait for like, that moment. It's going to be like, um, you know, when Oberyn Martell was like facing off against the mountain and he's like, you raped her, mm. you murdered her, you mm-hmm. killed her children. Like, it'll be Jon Snow. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Like, this is for... um. Yeah. Rob. This is for Rob and this is for my my mother, Catelyn. Uh, no, not mother, but anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. This, you know, and like he, he'll he really go for it, I reckon. I, I can't this wait. This is what you did to Sansa. This is what you did to Theon. You don't think Sansa's going to kill him? Mm. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's got to happen. That would be juicy too. So great. Maybe she'll get the final stab. Yeah. So many people want to kill him. Anyone would put their hand up. Oh, Seriously. <laughs> Yeah, I was really disappointed with that scene. I knew it was going to happen, but oh, and then him like going back to cutting the apple. Oh yeah, that was twee. Yeah, because that's what he likes to do with human bodies as well. Did you get that? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he I didn't get to, that. He likes to take the skin <laughs> off human bodies yeah, as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's cute. That's real cute. Unnecessary. Yeah. And he he strikes me as a meat man as well. Not a not, not a not a, a fresh either. fresh fruit kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's just trying to stay regular. Uh, yeah, exactly. Fight off the scurvy, which I imagine must be rife. You could see them eating the boiled shanks oh. in the at the wall. Yes. And Tormund making eyes at Brienne across the table. So great. Do you reckon there's going to be on. Brienne Tormund? Yeah. Or their couple name? Bromund? Good. No, terrible, but I'm sticking <laughs> with it. I don't know. That might just be Tormund. He's always talking about penises and sex. Yeah, but I reckon he's man enough for Brienne. In the books, he's like, like you know, he allegedly had sex with a bear. Oh. So <laughs> he's, I think he'll do anything that moves. I think. <laughs> Let's face it, Jon Snow came back to the dead and the first thing he made was a dick joke. So <laughs> I think we know what motivates that guy. Um, all right. Well, you know, there we go. That's a episode four. It, it really pushed, I think, pushed a lot of stuff along. Like we said, it got, da- it got Daenerys out of the Dosh Killeen. It got Sansa to the wall. Littlefinger's plot keeps moving along. High Sparrow stuff keeps happening. But uh, you just want to see some real goddamn fireworks. Stay tuned next week. Yeah, man. (laughs) Thank you to Alice at Alice in Frames on Twitter if you want to follow her. Let's hear another part of the great chat I got to have with the one and only George R.R. Martin. I have a... I, I am bad with eye color, but that's what Elio and Linda are for. Uh, they, they correct me on my eye color. And I have a horse that changes sex. Uh, he's not supposed to change sex, or she's not <laughs> supposed to change sex. She, she just seems uh, to do so actually. Who rides this androgynous horse? <laughs> Whose is it? I think it was Bran's horse, actually. Oh. It was, I think it was... Uh, Dancer. Uh, yeah. It changes from a... a a mare to a, a a gilding or something in the <laughs> between books. So uh, uh, that was pointed out to me by my fans. My fans are very eagle-eyed. They miss <laughs> they miss nothing. You 
bloody bastards. <laughs> <laughs> All here tonight. Yeah. Um, is, is it strange seeing something you've written and you've imagined in your own head on a screen? It's a little bit strange at first, but uh, it's also very exciting. And it's something that I'm used to. I mean, I did work in television for 10 years. So I, I still remember uh, 1986, I believe it was, the first of my scripts ever to be filmed was uh, being filmed for the Twilight Zone revival. And the, they were building it on the soundstage behind my office. They were building the sets that I described. And I, I, we were starting to shoot in two days. We were having rehearsal. And I was wandering around in the days. I wandered on this soundstage, and here were like 30 carpenters and painters and set designers uh, working, creating uh, a set that I had described. And here were costume people sewing together costumes that I had described and uh, to, to put the uh, actors in. And here were actual actors, some of whom I had heard of and seen in other films, uh, who were practicing lines that I had written. And, and that's, uh, you know, that was tremendously exciting. Um, but of course, like anything else, you know, the, the first time is the most exciting, and then you, you get used to it, and it <laughs> becomes part of what you did. And I worked in that business for 10 years, so when my 14th script was being filmed, it, it was, you know, well, let's go over and see them doing costumes. I hope they're not screwing up anything. Uh, and the excitement wears off. Uh, I did go away from television and film for quite a few years, though, so when, when we visited... Uh, the Game of Thrones set in Belfast for the first time, there was almost a rush, the return of that, that feeling from the first Twilight Zone, especially by the scale of it. I mean, Game of Thrones is a huge production, mm. much bigger than any show that I'd previously worked on. And the, the fact that we have, um, we have the largest soundstage in Europe in the sound hall, and we're using the entirety of it. It's, it's called the Paint Hall. It's on the old Harlan and Wolf shipyards where they built the Titanic and many ships that did not sink. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they used to paint the holes there. You can imagine the scale of this room, and it's now entirely devoted to Westeros. The, the throne room set is in one, one of the four pods, and in another one is the high hall of the Arons, and you can just wander from one to the other, and they have various bedrooms and all that. And that sounds amazing. In, in five countries simultaneously. In, wow. in you know, Belfast and in Iceland and Morocco and Malta and, and um, Dubrovnik. We've done a tremendous amount in Dubrovnik and Croatia. Beautiful city. And, and there are armies uh, of, of people doing uh, stunts and sword fights. There's a, we have a whole armory. We could equip an actual medieval army if we uh, needed to. <laughs> Admittedly, if contract negotiations don't go too well. <laughs> Admittedly, the swords would be dull, so they might lose a lot of battles, but, uh, but uh, you know, we could. There, there's racks and racks of swords and helmets and cloaks and things like that just waiting for our, our soldiers to don them. <laughs> um, you, you did say before that sometimes you might say like a little sentence in an interview and it gets taken out of context. Uh, so this might be one. But on the um, subject of, you know, things you write and seeing on the screen, I read that um, the Iron Throne, as you see it on TV, isn't like you imagined it. Uh, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's pretty cool. And, <laughs> and I think it's, it's become, um, for, for millions of people, the iconic Iron Throne. 
because they've seen it so often on TV and there are replicas of it. But if you, if you read the books, um, the Iron Throne is considerably bigger. I mean, way bigger than, than the one on television. It's also much uglier. Uh, they, they actually made a... F- if any throne made of swords can be considered attractive, the, one, the television version is fairly attractive. Yeah, it's I, I repeatedly make the point in the books that the Iron Throne is asymmetrical. It's ugly. It's like a giant hunched beast. It's full of sharp edges and, and things like that. It was hammered together by blacksmiths from a huge pile of half-melted swords, you know, just grabbing them and trying to build something that when it wasn't designed by a chair designer uh, um, or, or any kind of artistic sensibility. Or a set designer, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I've been... And it's been very difficult just from my descriptions... Uh, to portray this. Mm. I mean, I think they did a very good version for the show, but uh, of course I've been involved from the beginning uh, on other Ice and Fire sub-rights deals with uh, comic books and calendars and art books. So there have been, I don't know, 20, 30 artists over the years who have taken a crack at depicting the Iron Throne and none of them have ever gotten it right. I mean, some Are of them you giving have, them pointers? Or some it's all of them the have book gotten guys it better. Or? Well, some, in, in some places I do give them pointers, but I don't always have that opportunity. And even when I do give them pointers, I'm, I'm not an artist. I can't draw it. So I can say things like I've just said to you, well, it's asymmetrical mm. and it's ugly and it's built by blacksmith and it's sort of, it hunches like a beast. It should have something, it should have an oppressive feel to it. And... and uh, you know, and then they draw something based on these admittedly impressionistic phrases and bits of description that I give. Um, but the one I worked closest with was uh, on, the, on the most recent project with the French artist Mark Simonetti. And he'd done a version of the Iron Throne uh, a couple years ago that was still not right, but was the closest that I'd ever seen. And when it turned out he was going to do it again, he and I went back and forth. We must have exchanged... <coughs> A dozen emails, and we finally, I finally got one that I really quite like, and it's, uh, I think it's going to be in World of Ice and Fire. But, you know, we could never have built that, I mean, for, for the set. I mean, this is where the practicalities come in, into play. Um, it, despite the size of the paint hole, which is huge, mm. it's still a soundstage. Uh, you would have needed, the, the, the throne room in the books is the interior of St. Paul's Cathedral, you know, and, and they weren't going to let us film in St. Paul's Cathedral for a number of years. And the throne, you know, dominates it and, and has to be, you know, like 30 feet tall or something like that. And, and I don't know, 20 feet tall, big, tall thing. Where the king on it looks over the room. I mean, that's described at, at numerous points when you're up there. You're looking down on everyone the way I am looking down on you peasants and little people. <laughs> See, I can see the top of your head, and see, that, that's psychologically very important to a throne. It, it makes you and I up here feel dominant over these... Well, there are those people up there. I don't know. <laughs> oh, dear. They're the, yeah, they would have the dominance over us. Well, I don't know. But <laughs> There's even people up in the Erie up there. That, so. that, that's right. I can't see them. The lights are in my eyes, so... Is there anything uh, that you've seen on, in the opposite way, you've seen in the TV series and you've thought, that's, that's right, that's how it should have been? 
I know that Philip Pullman said that when he saw Nicole Kidman playing um, Mrs. Coulter, he was like, why did I write her as a, a brunette in Northern Lights? She was always going to be a blonde. Um, well, I mean, I, I think our cast is extraordinary. So um, some of them are just like my characters come to life. Even if they are different. I mean, uh, you know, Peter Dinklage, who was really the only person we ever considered for Tyrion, mm. is really very little like Tyrion as he's described in the mm. books. I mean, Peter is uh, considerably more attractive than Tyrion. Uh, and he's also taller. Um, if you read the descriptions of Tyrion, I don't think I ever give his precise height, but he's, he's clearly a, a shorter man, uh, probably by almost a foot than, than, uh, than Peter is. Um, but Peter is Tyrion. I mean, he's, he's made that part his own, and he's, he's inhabited it completely. Arya, in, in my head, doesn't have the kind of face that Maisie Williams has. Uh, you know, Arya has a much more starkish face, a sort of a lean, uh, kind of narrow face. Uh, but Maisie, once again, is, is Arya. She's, she's made it her own. So I think for the majority of the audience and, and for millions of people around the world, these actors have, uh, have redefined the roles. Um, maybe not necessarily for me, at least when I'm writing it, though, because I've lived with these characters for so long. I began writing this in 1991. The series you know, came along like 15 years mm-hmm. later, so... There were 15 years for these characters and their descriptions and the, the, the look of the castles and all that to set down roots. It's, it's hard for that to uh, change for me. Do you, do you love your characters or do they drive you insane at times? Or? Yes. Both? Both, yeah. <laughs> do you, do, I, do I, do, I do love them, uh, even, even the bad guys, even the ones I kill. Even part- Ramsey Bolton. Oh, Ramsey's a misunderstood fellow. <laughs> what are we misunderstanding? <laughs> he had a hard childhood. <laughs> There's a good excuse. Do you, do you like killing your characters? No, I don't. Then but why I, do you do I, it so do, much, George? I, I do think it needs to be done. Big fan of death up there, okay. Um. You know, Valar Magulis, all men must die. Um, I think it's part of life, and, and art needs to reflect life. Um, <laughs> particularly if you're, if you're writing a fantasy novel, an epic fantasy novel, certainly since the days of Tolkien, uh, so many fantasy novels have... Uh, been about war. I mean, there's a war at the center of Lord of the Rings. You know, the Sauron and his his great armies of Arks and and Southlings and Easterlings and and otherlings are all moving out, and uh, um, the free men of the West are fighting against them. And of course, in my in my books, there's a considerably more complicated war going on. But you look at all of the other writers who've been in between, and there's there's wars and wars and wars. Now, I'm not saying you have to write about war. There are many other interesting things to write about. Um, And I've written about some of them. I don't have a war in all my books. But if I'm going to write about war, if any writer is going to write about war, then I want him to treat war honestly. And 
one thing I, I know about war from people who served in Vietnam and, and served in other wars is, uh, you know, it, it does bring out the beast in men and anybody can die. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're the hero. I think everybody who died in any war th thought they were the hero right to the moment that the bullet blew off the top of their skull. Um, so it irritates me when, I, when I, I'm watching a movie and or reading a book and the hero is going through incredible dangers, him and his six buddies, and none of them die. You know, maybe one of them gets wounded at some point. Uh, but they, they all survive pretty much untouched at the end. I mean, and Tolkien, uh, which I read when I was young and, and at a pretty formative age, I think, that book had an immense influence on me. And it does have some powerful deaths in it. it, it uh, the death of Boromir, um, it still resonates me. That was that was a powerful moment. The death of Gandalf in the Mines of Moria, when uh, when the Balrog drags him down to uh, the thing, and he says, "Fly, you fools!" and uh, that's enormously powerful because uh, you know, especially at that point in the book, because Gandalf is the Gandalf is the father figure. Gandalf is the guy who has the answers. Gandalf is the one who knows what they should do and how they should do it. And suddenly he's gone. Mm. And the, you know, now the hobbits are on their own with Strider and Boromir and people they don't necessarily trust because their relationships are still fairly new at that point. And they're facing untold dangers and they don't have Gandalf to warn them of exactly what's around the next turn and bend. Um, that's a hugely powerful moment, which I actually, if it had been me, Gandalf would have stayed dead. I think. <laughs> bring <laughs> you know, bringing him back is surprising, but uh, it, in some ways it undercut the power of that moment. Uh, and by setting up those moments, Tolkien also set me up for the moment where it seemed like Frodo had died. You know, when, when I'm reading the end of the, uh, the Two Towers and Shelob stabs him and he seems to be dead and Sam took, takes the ring and then the book is over, you know, and you have to wait for the next book. Um, I really thought Frodo was dead. I, I thought Tolkien had earned his stripes with me. He had killed Boromir. <laughs> he, he had killed Fred and now he killed Frodo. My God, I really don't know what's going to happen in this book. Anyone can die. And it became so much more exciting in that point because anyone could die. The peril was real. Mm. And that's the feeling I want my readers to have. That uh, <laughs> if you're going to Fear enter... is the feeling you want your readers to have. <laughs> yes, actually. In a, in a word, if, you, if you're going to write about fearful situations, I want mm. you to have fear and the right kind of fear. I mean, we, we go on roller coaster rides and we're scared, right? And roller coaster rides are scary, supposedly, but we're not really scared. We know that we're going to get off the roller coaster after three minutes, and however high we go, and then we plunge down, and there's a certain thrill and, a, and I guess an adrenaline rush or something like that. So we like to be scared in certain senses, but. Um, that's one kind of fear, but there's another kind of fear that you feel when, like, you're all alone and you're walking in a bad neighborhood and, and uh, suddenly you hear footsteps behind you and you turn and you see 
see some people coming and you don't know who the hell they are and you know that that's a moment or a moment uh, that a soldier or a policeman or anyone fears when they're in a situation where where their life is on their on the line i mean that's a that's a much more visceral kind of fear and that's the kind of fear i want the reader to feel i mean i think writing is about strong emotions i want you to to be afraid when uh, i'm putting the characters in a in a scary situation uh, when a character dies, I want you to grieve for that character as you would for a friend or uh, a loved one or, or a parent. And this entire, you know, vicarious experience, which is my goal as a writer, um, I want you, if I'm going to describe a feast, I don't want to just say, yes, and then they ate a feast. It was delicious. I want you to, I wanted you to smell the food and taste the food, whether it's delicious food or bad food or whatever, uh, smell the uh, the particular things. If it's a, a joust, I want you to have the excitement of uh, getting caught up in who's going to win the joust. If it's a sex scene, I want you to get hot and bothered. Or um, I, I, wanna, I want you not just to read my work, but to live my work. That's, I know they're giving away this book bags here that uh, uh, some of the, I guess it went with the VIP tickets that says... Uh, a quote I said a couple years ago about a reader uh, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. But I've, I've always felt that. I, I think reading is about vicarious experience. I look back on Tolkien, which I read, like I said, when I was 12 and 13. And I remember things that happened in the book uh, you know, from half a century later as if I lived them. I don't remember the actual things that I lived at that time. I, <laughs> I have forgotten who sat behind me in geography class and, uh, you know, what I was doing that June, you know, of, of my 13th year and all that. Uh, so much of this memory is gone, but, but the, uh, the memory of these great books that I read at that time, not just Tolkien, but H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Robert A. Heinlein, um, some of the books I was reading for school and all that, the classics of literature, Dickens and so forth, Shakespeare, those are very much part of me. Uh, And I think they're part of us all, all of us readers, we absorb this stuff. And it shapes us as much as the real events of our real lives. So in that sense, it is real. So I think for all of us here, you've created something that's done that for us. So thank you very much. George R. R. Martin.